Today's podcast is brought to you by Acoustic, the company that's helping marketers get back to thinking bigger. When you're enabled by technology and not overwhelmed by it, you get to spend more time doing what really matters, connecting your brand with customers in truly meaningful ways, ways that make people feel something. You can learn more about Acoustic by visiting acoustic.com. Hello and welcome to Ad Ages AdLib podcast. I am Lindsay Rittenhouse, Ad Age Agency reporter and your host for this episode. Today, we're speaking with Allison Pepper, the Executive VP of Government Relations at the 4As. So she works with regulators, legislators, and cross-industry stakeholders to fight for the issues that are important to advertisers and specifically ad agencies. Hello, Allison. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for inviting me. She is working, of course, alongside other members of the forays and organizations like the ANA and local advertisers. Recently scored a major win in Washington, D.C., a 3% tax on advertising and personal information, which was proposed as part of the Washington, D.C. 2021 budget and financial plan, was defeated in a final vote on July 28th. The tax was aimed at helping combat a steep budget deficit. Uh, just to get started, Allison, can you talk about the tax and what it would have meant for advertisers and what exactly is a tax on personal information. Exactly. So the tax as it was proposed was actually kind of a two-part tax. Um, part of it was a tax on advertising services, digital advertising services, and the other part of the tax was a tax on personal information. And believe it or not, this tax actually started out as initially proposed at 10%. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah it's, it started out quite a bit higher than the, what you saw actually being debated in the council. So what it would have done was it would have imposed a 3% tax on advertising services. So things like um, it defined it as planning, creating, displaying, distributing, and then it would have proposed a tax on personal information. And if you're wondering what exactly that means, you're asking the right question that everybody else in this entire industry has been asking. Okay ever since these taxes started getting proposed because while these bills very much, they define personal information and some of it is straightforward. It's things you already know about like name, you know, phone number, address. It goes a lot broader than that. And it says things like consumer preferences, consumer habits, IP addresses, all these types of things. So it's hard to know exactly how this personal information tax would play out, mm -hmm. but but, you know, in, in the absence of the regulations that would tell you how it would play out, it does appear that, to give you an example, an agency, you know, could, could obtain some demographic info, not because they're going to do a campaign on it. They're just trying to help their client understand the customer better, right? They're helping the client kind of develop that profile. It's not going to be anything that's based on, they're going to base a campaign on. It appears that if you just bought the demographic data, you would be subject to that 3% tax in addition to the 3% for any of the actual advertising campaign. So the tax has a bit of a like a pyramid effect. The tax could not just be 3%. Depending on how it was applied, it could be 9% for the same campaign. Mm. So it's pretty significant. So what was the argument for A's presented to the D.C. City Council on why this tax shouldn't be passed? Could you walk us through a little bit about like what those conversations uh, were like? Yeah, absolutely. So for an agency's perspective, the tax was problematic in really two big ways. Honestly, it was more than two ways. It was a little bit like an onion. Every time you looked at the statute again and you peeled it back, you're like, oh, that's problematic. That's problematic. But for agencies, you know, the way the four A's looked at it is there were sort of two big buckets of problems with the tax. One was just the tax on digital advertising services that does look like it would have been applied to the agencies, right, um, to basically collect and be responsible for those taxes. 
There's an initial problem with that is that it's just not clear even what it covers, how it would be taxed, how mm-hmm. agencies would implement it, and what they would be responsible for. So for an agency, there's a liability problem just off the bat. Like, what am I collecting? You know, yeah, right. I didn't get a delinquent tax notice from DC or an under, you know, you know, under withholding if I don't do this right. So it creates on one level a huge compliance nightmare for agencies. They don't even know what they're being asked to do. Yeah. And then there's the business aspect, which is the whole separate aspect of this. And that is for agencies, you no know, different than most other business partnership relationships, typically local taxes are included in a contract and they're ultimately passed on to the client. And there's nothing specific about that to agencies. That's how most, you know, partnership contracts work. Like mm-hmm. for instance, if you've ever hired a contractor at your house and you look at the contract, you ultimately are paying all the tax. That's just mm-hmm. how the way contracts work. So for, you know, agencies, that part of it is this is a new tax on my clients, on my businesses that I'm trying to help grow their business right now during this unbelievable economic downturn. And now all these small businesses in D.C., now I'll have to pay a new tax, my client, right? So part part of it is just the compliance nightmare for agencies. But the other part is, you know, the four A's looked at it as we really want agencies to be advocates for their clients here. So it kind of two part. Absolutely. And another argument would be if if I'm you know correct, would also be they're at a at a competitive disadvantage if you're in the DC area versus companies and small agencies in other areas of the of the country, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the the big question is um, so this whole region is called the DMB. That's how everyone refers to it. So it's DC, Maryland, Virginia. And it's it's a you know, probably a lot like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, right? People kind of interplay in and out of those three states. They work in one, they live in another. That's kind of how DC, Maryland, Virginia are, right? You might work in one, live in another. So there are some weird tax reciprocity issues that go on in the DMV, but the concern you exactly pointed out, the concern is that, listen, would agencies in DC have to, you know, collect these taxes, whereas you could just go to Maryland or Virginia, right? Mm-hmm, and, hire mm-hmm. agency and not have to deal with this at all. So the concern for a lot of DC agencies was, why is the DC council putting me at this competitive disadvantage? Right. Yeah. Okay, so now the DC Council is obviously receptive um, to your arguments, and uh, in, in the final vote, they voted to scrap the tax. So, um, just is that is that how are you feeling about you know the final vote? I mean, I feel great about the final vote. Um, the four A's and a lot of our other sister trades and a lot of individual companies really worked on a very concerted effort to reach out to the council to help them understand the issues about how this would be so problematic, right? For mm-hmm. businesses in Washington, DC. And this moved very fast. I mean, this, this was like two weeks <laughs> to give you an idea of how quickly this moved from introduction to vote. This was two weeks. That is, that is almost unprecedented speed for moving mm-hmm. the complicated legislation. And I think what's great is that, you know, a lot of what really persuaded the council and that they were very receptive to was the educational aspect of this is what you're actually asking us to do, or this is what we think you're asking us to do. And this is why it's so problematic. And this is why it's ultimately so detrimental to small businesses in DC, particularly retail and restaurants, which are facing, you know, closures and the worst economic declines they've probably ever seen, you know, in their tenure. So the council, I think, I think one of the problems you see with some of these type of taxes is without further inspection, if you just look at it from, you know, the 20,000 foot view, 
legislators can say, this is just about Google, Amazon, Apple. You know what I'm saying? This right. is just yeah. the big parties. This doesn't right. have a downstream impact. Mm-hmm. But I think when you really educate legislators that, hey, this has a huge trickle down impact, they tend to see it a little bit more. And it's not, you know, it's not malfeasance on the part of legislators. They're not trying to do bad things to the businesses. Yeah. But mm-hmm. don't see the big picture, I think. Yeah. But now, now DC, they are, you know, cities combating a, a steep budget deficit um, mm-hmm. without the 3% tax, which would have estimated to raise 2020 revenues by 18.4 million. How are they going to tackle this deficit? What are, what are they doing? Yeah. So the chairman of the DC council is a gentleman named um, Phil Mendelson. And he put out a statement, you know, when this first came up, um, when, when he heard so much pushback from industry and other local businesses, he said, okay, let's go back and let's look at our budget and let's see what we can do as far as rearranging spending or doing some deferments, right? So that we don't have to raise taxes. So there were, there were a couple different things that happened, but I think the big area that DC did to, to sort of not raise this tax that was expected to raise 18, the 18 million you just mentioned is they delayed a lot of capital projects. Right. So they delayed or deferred a lot of capital projects. But for some capital projects that were already in the work and funding could not be delayed for, they rearranged budgets. So the different pieces of the sources of funding from those capital projects came from different budgets so that it wasn't a total hit to any one budget. So some of it was a deferment. Some of it was just getting funding from other capital projects. What were, what were some of those capital projects? I, his release didn't specifically say what they were, but like the most common capital project is typically infrastructure, right? So roads or, you know, rails or airports or dams. So it was probably some combination, not dams, but some combination of those other ones. Obviously. Got it. Okay. Um, and now you don't, you don't think this is the end though, correct? There are many states facing state budget deficits. Uh, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities estimate that states could face a collective budget deficit of $290 billion by 2021 due to the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we've seen other states try to introduce similar tax bills, Maryland, New York, although I believe the mayor of Maryland did veto the one um, tax bill that was similar to this on personal information that was introduced. He vetoed it in May, but you're you're thinking that other states are going to follow through is or follow suit. Is that is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And that number you just mentioned, that estimation of the 290 billion being the collective yeah. deficit for states, just to give you like a scale, that's a bigger collective deficit than post 9-11 or post the beginning of the 2008 Great Recession. So, I mean, this is, this is an unprecedented budget deficit. Mm-hmm. I think states are going to have to do it. I mean, you look at how states, how states, you know, look to balance their budgets and states typically, states have to balance their budget either by constitution or by statute. So they're not like the federal government. They can't keep deficit spending. States mm-hmm. have to balance their budgets. And there's typically only two ways that a state can balance their budget. One is to raise taxes or to cut spending. And in a more normal year, that that tends to, you know, you everyone has to face a hardship, but in a more normal year, you kind of can balance out with that. Um, we're probably facing a situation right now where states are just not going to be able to cut their spending or up their taxes to, you know what I mean, to a level place. Mm-hmm. And you can do some of it with deferment. You can do some of it with delayed payments and things. But yeah, I absolutely expect that you're going to start seeing these bills Absolutely, these advertising taxation and these personal um, taxation bills, I think they're absolutely going to keep proliferating across the country. And um, 
quick side note on the Maryland thing, it's actually not dead because while okay. the Mar- while the Maryland governor did veto it, it's still subject to an override in 2021 by the legislature. Mm-hmm. So if the governor overrides it in 2021, that tax is back on. And that's something that the 4As is trying to fight? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's the other really hard part about this. There's so many different flavors of these, these bills that are coming yeah. out that would really impact agencies. And that's why the 4As is so involved in this issue, because this isn't just kind of same old, same old advertising taxes. This is advertising taxes, personal information taxes, digital mm-hmm. taxes. There's there's all these new flavors that didn't used to exist. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about this rise of the personal information tax? Um, where did you start seeing it? What could this mean for advertisers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like a lot of things we're talking about these days, I think this personal information tax has its genesis in um, Google and Facebook and Amazon. Yeah. If I'm yeah. honest, I think that's where the genesis of it is. Um, of course. Seems like it's it's all Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple all the time lately. But I, I think that's the genesis of this. You know, a lot of states and cities have looked at these, quite frankly, enormous profit margins, right, of these companies. And they're mm-hmm. like, what's, what's the basis of these profit margins? And then they start looking at how PI is being used, et cetera. And they want a piece of it. I mean, that's really the Maryland bill in a nutshell, because what's interesting about the Maryland bill is the Maryland bill has a floor of a hundred million dollars in global revenue for the tax to even apply to you. It doesn't, that doesn't cover that many companies, right? So Mm -hmm. bills like that are very much targeted at these large companies. Okay. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, just doing it state by state. Now I know, um, the CCPA in California, that, that, bill, the state's version of, of course, of GDPR that went into effect in January. I know the four A's had been originally opposing that law. And part of that argument was just you guys wanted to fight for a more national um, overall sort of law, not state by state. Um, So is this kind of the same sort of argument that you, you just don't want this to be a state by state sort of issue? Um, so yes and no. It's a good, that's a good question. Yes and no. I think it's, it's a complex issue because tax, tax is so fundamentally a state purview as well. You know what I'm saying? Right, there's, such a, right. there's such a history yeah. of tax being a fundamental state issue. Um, I think the, the issue with the privacy versus the tax, I wouldn't say that, um, I mean, we already have not federal taxes, right? So we already got versions. I, I think trying to strip that power from states would lead to a revolt that none of us want to see from the states. So I think reserving that to the states will probably stay there. The privacy issue, at least the way the 4As thinks about the privacy issue, we still absolutely are advocating for comprehensive federal privacy legislation, right? That it's the federal issue. And I think that's become even more, or the issues become even more into focus lately with coronavirus, right? So you're seeing all this legislation being introduced by um, the federal government and these new regulations and states talking about, oh, Here's how we're going to regulate privacy with the COVID tracking apps, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem is tracking apps don't stop at state lines. Part of their benefit, right, is tracking. Yeah, and it's going to cross state lines. So apps aren't apps, and you know, tracking mobile technology, it's not structured in such a way that you can change the features when someone crosses from Georgia to Alabama. You know, mm-hmm. so I think there are aspects of what we're seeing with coronavirus right now that have really. I don't want to say open the eyes, but but made a lot of members of Congress 
much more aware that there are a lot of aspects about how the internet works and how privacy needs to work that simply do not make sense to regulate on a state-by-state basis. Okay. Yeah. How, how is that fight going? Um, is that something you're particularly focused on right now? Yeah. So one of the things that the four A's has done for the past year is we helped found this initiative called Privacy for America. And the goal of Privacy for America was to get together and draft comprehensive baseline privacy legislation. And it's an effort that I, myself and the four A's are very proud of because a lot of different trade groups and advocacy groups and business groups put out privacy principles. But principles are, if I'm being not too flippant, hopefully, principles are easy. You know, it's easy just to say privacy, choice, notice, whatever. It's a lot harder to dig into existing, you know, federal law, see where the gaps are, understand what, you know, consumers want from protections, understand the interplay between federal regulated agencies. It's a lot harder to dig into the details and put together draft legislation. And that's what Privacy for America actually did. So um, that group is still very much talking to members of Congress. And it's, it's not a partisan effort. So the group talks to the Senate, talks to the House, talks to Republicans, talks to Democrats, completely bipartisan. Um, I will say, realistically, this close to the November election, I don't think you're going to see comprehensive federal privacy legislation passed by November. Okay. But I, yeah, but I think everything we've seen, you know, um, is going to make comprehensive privacy legislation way more of a hot button topic in 2021. Okay. And how are advertisers right now navigating the CCPA since it went into effect in January? Um, how are you advising the agencies and advertisers in this space? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think with the CCPA, one of the things that's been particularly challenging for agencies is um, you look at the way the CCPA is drafted and it's, it's just got these three categories, you know, it's got businesses, it's got third parties and it's got service providers. And what's difficult for a lot of agencies is the way the CCPA is drafted, it doesn't always recognize the intermediary nature of a lot of agencies and how they work, you know, for instance, mm-hmm. between media properties and advertisers. So I think one of the things that the agencies have really been struggling with and that we've been working at the 4As to help them with is understanding how to deal with contractual issues on the back end, mm-hmm. helping them to understand the different compliance solutions that are in the market, right? The DAA compliance solution, the IAB compliance solution. Can you just oh. give us a little bit of a, of a breakdown of that for people who may not be familiar? Sure, sure. So you mean between the DAA and the yep, IAB? Yeah. yeah, if you could just give a little, little bit of background on that. Sure, absolutely. So one of the things that the CCPA does was it created a lot of new restrictions and quite frankly, ambiguities that I don't think anybody fully understands at this point (laughs) about what you have to do with data being transferred downstream off a publisher's website. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of confusion about like, what do I do if someone opts out? Like, how do I make sure that that's effectuated downstream? So these different frameworks developed, um, you know, IEDs put together one, a group called the DAAs put together one. And then there are some private market, right, private party mm-hmm. solutions that put together things like um, privacy strings that you can implement, you know, mm-hmm. for, that basically a website can take this privacy string and say, okay, I want everyone downstream to know that, you know, I provided notice that this person opted out, things like that. Mm-hmm. So these frameworks, these frameworks really, in some sense, help to do the technical side of downstream data moving. That's basically what they do. But it's, I mean, I wish I could describe it more clearly for you, but honestly, I don't think. Yeah, it's confusing. (laughs) It's confusing. And the, the problem too is, you know, when the attorney general put out their enabling regulations for CCPA, 
some areas it cleared up aspects of this, but some areas it created more confusion in this. And, and, you know, the CCPA is maybe going to be amended. There's a ballot initiative in California right now Hmm. that would amend the CCPA. And so, and what would, what would those amendments look like? Yeah. So it's actually pretty long. There's a ton of amendments, but I think one of the big things that's, that's interesting to point out is what one of the things that this ballot initiative would do was it would create a separate agency in California, just about privacy. Like it would take it away from the attorney general's office. I mean, Mm -hmm. for the most part, and it would say that the CCPA is totally going to be enforced and administered by this third party agency just dedicated to privacy. How are, how are agencies starting to prepare for this? I know um, UM appointed their first chief privacy officer just to deal with these sort of issues. Are you seeing that from a lot of agencies or just how, how are you seeing them kind of prepare for these type of laws? Yeah, so, um, um, yeah, I think you mean uh, Ariel Garcia just got appointed. Yep, yeah, Ariel, yep. She's fantastic. She's such a great choice for that role. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, yeah, the larger agencies that, that have more resources, I think, are starting to invest more in, in CPOs, and they're starting to invest more in their compliance folks. Um, first, you know, the smaller shops, maybe the mid-sized or small agencies who can't bring on someone full-time on that, I think they're starting to go more to um, groups like us, forays to help them, you know, sort their way through this sort of compliance issues, and to help them understand a little bit more about what it is that they need to do to be in compliance. I mean, one of the things that um, I'll just mention this because I've been working on like five hours a day for the past six weeks. <laughs> I'm sure. Oh We're in the process right now of putting together this very detailed video series on discrete privacy topics in 15 minutes or less that basically agencies can come look at. And something as basic as, you know, what is a data broker registry? Does my agency need to be listed on a data broker registry? CCPA, how is it going to change if the California ballot initiative means if I'm an agency and I was using Privacy Shield, right? What mm-hmm. is the striking down Privacy Shield? And it's these series of 15 minutes or less videos just from the agency point of view to really help them understand what they need to know about privacy in a very succinct fashion. So that's kind of one of the things, resources that we've really been working on developing for agencies so that they can be up to speed on everything they need to do on privacy. You know, I mean, obviously I can't give legal advice, but the idea is here is 15 minutes or less, everything you need to know on this topic. And here's where you can go for more information. And that's something that we've really heard demand from, from agencies. And and are you seeing your membership increase because of this? Just like because of the complicated and the landscape becoming even more complicated um, and, and with these privacy introduction of these privacy laws. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about increase. I don't know those numbers, so I can't say one mm-hmm. way or the other. But I will say that I think, I think the uncertainty out there has absolutely increased engagement. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely engagement. And, you know, I think traditionally some of these issues might have been, oh, that's just a problem for holding company agencies. Or, it's just, that's just a problem for media agencies. That's not uh-huh. something to worry about. I think one of the things that's really changed is the whole thing around privacy and the thought process around privacy for agencies is that's not just a problem for holding companies anymore. That's something that everybody needs to be thinking about independence mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so what else, what else are you focused on right now in your role? Yeah. I mean, you know, for the government relations perspective, we would work on, the forays would work on absolutely everything that has to do with anything that could impact an agency, right? 
of pros and cons. Generally speaking, though, at least for the remainder of 2020 and into 2021, everything's going to really probably, you know, we'll say everything's yeah. going to fall. <laughs> you never know. Things change. Yeah. Every day, everything's going to fall into those big buckets of privacy and tax. I think that I think everything's going to be a subset of privacy and tax. Okay. How has it been for you um, since the start of the pandemic, um, working remotely, just, just how's, how's everything been going for you? You know, what's funny. I was telling a colleague of mine this the other day, I, I've spent the last 15 years of my career working remotely in DC oh, yeah. Yeah, for New York companies. So, so you're a pro. <laughs> in some weird ways, this has like been the way I worked for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. So, so in some respects, it's not that different. The only thing different is not going into the city every day or not physically going to Congress or not physically flying to states. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the remote work aspect, I don't know, it's kind of same old, same old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you like it? Um, have you, have you enjoyed it? I'm still figuring out if I like it or not. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I was talking to my husband the other day and I was saying aspects of it. I actually think in some ways I'm more focused because I don't have the commute time, you know, I don't right. have Me too. to mm-hmm. settle down, but, um, the flip side of it, I think it is, there's such a thing as too much isolation. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you when you ask the dogs a question and expect them to stop, <laughs> it's time to move yeah. on. <laughs> no, I know. Oh. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, congratulations on the defeat of the 3% tax in Washington, D.C. on advertising and personal information. It was great just to catch up and talk a little bit more about this issue and, you know, what it what it means for advertisers. And we'll, we'll see how it progresses, I guess, as, you know, other states may or may not start introducing similar tax bills. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's it's hard to think they won't start because it was a it was an issue even before the current pandemic. Um, so we'll see. I, I certainly expect it to. And um, what's interesting is I think it won't just be states. I think it'll be cities as well. Okay. Yeah. And and you think they'll take into consideration the the effects that the pandemic has had on businesses like DC did. I think it will. Um, I think one big wild card that we didn't talk about, and I just want to throw out here as we wrap up, is for most states, the single biggest line item of their revenue is money from the federal government. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the biggest line item. What we saw this week with the proposal that the Senate and the White House put out for the next round of COVID relief did not include a line item of money for state and local governments. Right. And they're facing such steep budget deficits. Ugh. Yeah. So I, I think, I, by the way, I think the final negotiation is going to include money for state and local governments. I mm-hmm. think I think it's a bargaining chip, I think it's mm-hmm. bargaining chip. but depending on what that number is, will give you some indication just to be frank about how desperate states get. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Okay. Well, we will see then. <laughs> All <Yeah>. right. Uplifting <laughs> note to end on. <laughs> yeah, that was the best one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is pandemic times, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Right. Thank you, Lindsay. Okay. That 
was Allison Pepper, Executive VP of Government Relations at the Four A's, and I'm Lindsay Rittenhouse, agency reporter at AdAge. Want to thank our producer Max Sternlicht, and thank you for listening to today's episode. You can subscribe to the AdLib podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.